Hello, this is Future PMC. We are releasing episodes to the main feed of Radio Free Mercury, our patron-exclusive podcast series that covered The Witch from Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it aired. This week, we are releasing our discussion on episode 15. This podcast was originally published for patrons on April 28th, 2023. Right now, also in the main feed, I would encourage you to check out our coverage of the classic OVA Gunbuster, where we will also soon be releasing episodes about the novelization and short stories. Our current bonus podcast series is called Moon Race Wireless, a twice-a-month podcast covering single episodes of Turn A Gundam. The first four episodes of Moon Race Wireless are on the main feed, so check them out, and if you like them, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Thank you. Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Not only is this an episode of Giant Robot FM, but this is an episode of Radio Free Mercury, our supplemental Witch for Mercury podcast that's running currently week to week. And we are covering a banger of an episode. I, of course, am Steven Hero. I'm joined, as always, by PMC Trilogy. PMC, what's up? Hello, hello, hello. And we are we are not alone, as per usual. We have a brand new guest, a guest um, who I've been following for a long time, Mike Williams. Mike Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm ready to be here and talk about some Gundam. Now, Mike, you are a games journalist with a storied career in the industry. I've been following you since your U.S. Gamer days, but you've also contributed to a bunch of other publications. P- promote yourself. Like, what's Talk about the fine work that you do. Who are you for those of you, uh, those of our listeners who are unaware? Uh, as you have pointed out, I'm a games journalist. I've been doing it probably like 14 years at this point, 13, something like that. It's a very long time. Started uh, writing a long time ago on industrygamers.com. Uh, that got acquired by gamesindustry.biz, so I was writing news there. Uh, then I was a uh, news editor and reviews editor at US Gamer. After that, I moved to PC Mag briefly, and then I am currently at Fanbyte. At what we call the Link Shell, uh, where I cover Final Fantasy XIV all day, every day. Uh, and where I go beyond that, who knows? The, the sky is the limit. The human potential uh, is just endless. Now you're speaking Gundam, my friend. <laughs> now, Mike, we were actually in the same room once, not to sound like a creeper, but I attended your <laughs> panel on the timeline of Assassin's Creed at PAX East 2019, back in the before times. And you did a great job. I'm not an Assassin's Creed like uh, devotee. I, I was like, oh, Mike's hosting a panel? Cool, I'm going to show up. And you did a fantastic job. Yeah, Assassin's Creed is one of my like forever games. Like That's one of my franchises that uh, even even the, the bad ones, the quote-unquote bad ones, I think there's something good in there. So uh, I, I will always show up for Assassin's Creed, even though Ubisoft has gone through some struggles right now. Were you at Paxis this year? This is the first year in a while I didn't go because uh, my daughter was recently born. I'm hoping to go next year. I heard it was a little more bulked up this year. Uh, I did not go this year. I was at the the last Pax, mm. um, so I was at Pax East. Was that 2020? 
whichever one it was, it, it was the one where literally like I had a Square Enix appointment for that show. And Square Enix was like, sent an email and being like, yeah, none of our Japanese people are coming at all because COVID had just started hitting Oh yeah, uh, over in Asia. And that was when everyone was like, what's going on here? Uh, and so that, that was the last PAX I was at. I didn't get to go to this year's one. Uh, cause I was still a little, little iffy. Uh, mm. but I, I eventually ended up going to a live event and, and I still knock on wood, haven't caught, uh, COVID yet. So, Ooh, that's a feather in one's cap. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm riding high so far. <laughs> now, speaking of video games, I'm sure you're like knee deep in a bunch of stuff currently, but this is a Mecca podcast. Are there any mech games coming out in the future that you have your eyes on? I think you played some Phantom Brigade too, right? Yeah, I played Phantom Brigade. Uh, probably the next game that is coming down the pipeline that has mech in it. It already came out, uh, Front Mission uh, First Remake. Um, but I, for some reason, I recently started buying physical copies. So my physical copy isn't coming until like June. So that's probably the next big mech game. Unless you count like Xenoblade Chronicles 3, which mm. just had its DLC come out. And technically, they do turn into mechs. So uh, it's a little Escaflone-ish, but it works. I heard the I heard the Zeno, Zeno Gears vibes are like deep in that game. Uh oh, they are they are deep, deep hard and strong. I also have to thank you for doing the coverage on Phantom Brigade because that was helpful for me when I had the opportunity to do a podcast interview with Adelaide Jenkins. Uh, a, a month or two ago and talked to her oh, about Oh, the creator, yeah. Yes, the, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I emailed the studio and I was like, is there anyone excited about Mechs that I could talk to about Phantom Brigade? And they're like, yeah, sure, here's the game director. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, this rules. And, and she was fantastic. Yeah, I remember seeing... So I saw Phantom Brigade uh, at the last PAX. And so it had been from there uh, until it came out. Uh, and I haven't spoken to Adelaide since then, but... Uh, uh, her excitement was infectious. Yeah, speaking of PAX East, I played PAC, I mean, I played Phantom Grade twice at two separate PAX East. It was fun to see how the game evolved over time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, someone like showed me the original version, which I had not known was more grid-based, more definitely more front mission-ish. Uh, by time, the first time I saw it at PAX East, it was a, like, what it it eventually became, which is it had the little timeline function to allow it to work that way. Mm -hmm. Are you a big Armored Core fan? I have to ask for my friend PMC here. But of course, but of course. Uh, like, I, I, feel, I feel a little weird because, uh, like, FromSoft, as they used to be, and FromSoft now, they have such a, a like, a great visibility, but... I honestly don't think people are going to care about Armored Core like that. So, like, I'm just, I'm like, hopefully it sells enough that they keep going. Like, they care, and I care, but is that going to be enough for, for the Souls Ring, Elden Ring fans? Well, probably not, but... I'm I mean, so I'm curious, as, as someone who's done Armored Core speedrunning, if the, like, massive Souls speedrunning community is going to pay any attention to Armored Core. My assumption is kind of no, but... Who knows? We'll see. 
Yeah, I, I also think no, but uh, it, it, maybe uh, they're, they're going to do a, you know, one for me, one for thee kind of thing. Because um, Miyazaki seems to love oh, um, yeah. the core. Yeah. I wonder if he even sells a quarter of Elden Ring sales. <laughs> even cracks a million for that matter. Here's we can hope. dream. Look, well, there's I, always hope. Mechs are big. That's why we're doing a mecha podcast, Steven. <laughs> mechs are big. Actually, speaking of mechs, Mike, how about Gundam? Like, what is your fandom origin story? I remember I heard you on an Axe of the Blood God podcast talking about Gundam not that long ago. Um, where did you begin your Gundam journey? So I began long ago, back when Gundam Wing was airing in Japan. So, like, back in the day, and this is how old I am, um, we either got our stuff on bootleg tapes or you watched it at a convention. And that's how I first saw Gundam. I saw Gundam Wing Japanese bootlegs, like, on the convention. Like, they, they don't do it as much now because, you know, the conventions have a lot of actual sponsors from the companies that own the rights to these. But back in the day, like, convention video rooms were just like, all right, what tapes do we have? Let's just show like five or six episodes. And so that's when I first saw Gundam Wing um, and then kept watching it. And then uh, a few years later, I forget how long it was from the transition to when it aired in Japan to when it started running on Toonami and everyone was like, what is this? was, you know, like a couple years. I, I, I forget the, exactly the timeline, but it was one of those where I had seen it already and then I went from there to, like, essentially straight to the dealer's room and was like, what is this Gundam thing? So, like, give me some other stuff. And that's how I got into Gundam, really, uh, at that time. Do you have, like, a Desert Island Gundam pick? If you can only bring one Gundam show with you. See, that's hard, because they hit, like, you know, the, the 8th MS team is always the 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 one to go for. Like, if you're talking Gundam War, mm-hmm. like, deep into the war, that's always the pick. But I, I also enjoy the, the alternate universe um, Shonen Nonsense Gundams. Double O, up until parts, like, the early part of Season 2 is real struggle, but even then it comes together towards the end for me. Uh, and we don't, we don't talk about the trailblazer film. <laughs> uh, so those would pro- those would probably be my two choices. Um, eighth MS team or, or double O as the, as probably the most complete alternate universe Gundam for me. Speaking of alternate universe, how have you been enjoying Witch for Mercury so far? How does it rank among Wing or Double O? It's really good. My issue right now is I'm worried. Like, so we're on episode 15, and as far as we know, there's just the two cores. So mm. it'll end theoretically on episode 24, but it definitely feels. Like especially with some of the the cans we opened in this episode, that there should there needs to be another season. Yeah, um, I'm super curious about this because like part of me thinks, all right, we've been moving at a very quick pace so far. I do see like 
endpoints for our major characters. Like I see Guel and Shadik and Suleta and friends coming to some resolution by the end of episode 24. But you're right. Like this episode really just blows open the dimensions of the world. Yeah. And, and like a lot of the stuff that they revealed here, like you can sort of get from like context clues and they don't entirely explain like things like the proxy war, um, that they've sort of hinted at and really sort of ground everything like up until when we were focusing more on the school stuff, like this sort of spacey and earthian thing has just seemed like the, the classic, you know, space racism that Gundams have, but like outlining the fact that these core uh, corporations in space have kept earth in endless war is really interesting and i wish they had like explained a little bit of that more like explained how the binared group works and why uh earth might hate them so much and why you know like it's it's definitely supposed to be sort of a global north global south kind of thing um i, I wish they had just put a little bit more of that back in season one to sort of ground like Choo Choo's thing and the rest of the Earth House and stuff like that. No, I totally agree. The um, the anime sicko in me was nicking because there's that like mythical Code Geass sequel show in the wings. And Mike, you mentioned Gubble, Gundam Double O. Back when Gundam Double O was airing, it went Gundam Double O Season One, Code Geass. Oh no, we Code Geass, Gundam Double O, R two. Double O. I'm curious if Sunrise is planning something similar with Witcher Mercury 24 episodes, Z of the Recapture, who knows how many episodes, and they switch off yearly. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice. They, they still have, um, what's the other Sunrise gunplay show that they have out there? Um, oh, the, the Bill the Divers? Yeah, not Bill Divers, um, um, although they are doing another uh build show Mm -hmm. but it's like a web series thing and i forget the the title of it right now Hmm. um i'll it'll it'll come to me probably but uh i i do like to see them sort of uh diversify out there without further ado let's jump right into a very aptly titled episode 15 father and child we open on earth amidst bombed-out buildings and crumbling infrastructure, which serves as the Dawn of Fold's base of operations. Materially, things are not looking great for the Resistance group. Supplies are dwindling in the aftermath of their failed strike on Delling, as they're forced to ration water and food. We get a nice little shot of, like, notes on a billboard, um, talking about, not billboard, but, you know, like a bulletin board above a desk, um, just with, like, little messages to the group. I think it's worth pausing on this image, because, like, times are... Not good for the Donna Fold. They're rationing food. 1,500 kilocalories a day. That's not much at all. Save your food. Save the earth. So they're, I wonder if they're like pushed to the limit. Like how long has this group been fighting? Like how, is this, has this been like a war of attrition for them? It does seem like it, especially since uh, like early on in the episode, they show like the, the, the power generation van and they show some of the actual infrastructure being mostly abandoned like they live in essentially a tent city so it 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 seems like for some reason those buildings aren't particularly useful perhaps they're not safe 
they're worried about them falling down as as they are wont to do uh, in this episode when something crashes into them. Um, but there definitely seems to be sort of like they're living off the land rather than living in the infrastructure that looks like it's there. Fine, for whatever reason. I mean, that's another big question, too. Like, what does the rest of the Earth look like? Yeah, it's a huge question. Yeah, I'm really curious to the we meet a character in this opening sequence that we don't really see again for the rest of the episode, and that is the refugee camp leader that Olcott is talking to. That you know, they exchange the batteries, and the guy asks for painkillers. And I'm very curious. Like Naji describes them as uh, Donafold as hiding in the refugee camp, so that's like another sort of dimension, right? Is like if it was just the refugee camp here, was that permissible? You know, was that, you know, because we know the Benner group is looking for Donna Fold, but like, you know, were they officially here even, you know, what, what is that status? Um, you know, were they illegally settled on earth, uh, you know, to some degree, like uh, victory Gundam or something. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I, I find myself asking questions too, about how much, like, this is the experience of everyone too, right? This is not just resistance fighters. I think this is like everyone on earth. Yeah. And, and, I also do have the questions. I mean, like they have the the PMC, the Gundam Hunters, who seem to be the the force that that keeps Earth stuff on Earth. Like they have an acknowledgement that these Earth forces have mobile suits, but those mobile suits are mostly supposed to be used just on Earth. And so I kind of like want to know if like. What's the the full like? Is there a a blockade around the planet preventing any mobile suits from getting out there? Like this episode has a lot of that. Like, oh, what's 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 really happening here? Since you brought up private military corporations, I have to tell you, PMC, my friend here, is not a fan of them. Like Mike might be jumping on this call, going, "Who the fuck is this PMC guy? Is he a fan of like?" paramilitary groups acting for the government no it's it's not that no, i'm really a fan of the professional managerial class no um <laughs> i <laughs> it's actually uh you know since we're going to mention Melior salad for the pmc thing is actually it's actually just related to my my name and uh and, but when i got this nickname it was around the time that metal gear salad four had just released and so I was a college student and I came home at that time and a friend was playing Metal Gear Solid 4 and, the, and you know, Metal Gear Solid 4, PMC, PMC, PMC. And I was like, this is very surreal. I don't know why this, why this is happening this way. Kojima knew, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah. The uh, Kojima speaks to the future uh, continues on. We saw it with Death Stranding and the, and the pandemic deliveries. It's wild. It's wild. Uh, I, I, I will say I was, uh, uh, not anti, yeah, no, I was anti Kojima for quite a while until <laughs> Death Stranding. Death Stranding was so good that I was like, ah, Hell yeah. that's fair. Uh, I guess. Olcott, the Dawn of Fold commander who led the strike team during the Plant Quetta battle, coordinates with his peers, trying to get them the supplies they need. Uh, Mike, on our last episode, PMC like casually asked, without knowing the future, why does Olcott have a page on the Witch for Mercury official website where other characters do not? And we were given our resounding answer today. Right. Specifically, I wanted justice for Godoy. I think Godoy deserves a profile page. Olcott, fine. He's, he's earned it. I still think Godoy needs a page. Yeah, especially since Olcott's uh, uh, relatively new and I'm... And- 
over the course of the episode, we can sort of see, I guess, what he's going to slot into. Because, at least for me, my always thought during this is who's going to be the the mobile suit piloting it. Like, Lady Prospera has a mask, but she is not the mask guy. She is not the char. And it was always between Ghoul, for me, mm. or Shadik. And this episode tells me that it's probably not going to be Ghoul. And Shadik has uh, some moments in here. It's like, oh, it's you. It's it's definitely you. <laughs> That's super interesting, because there's a lot of chatter on that just that subject on Gundam Twitter this week after this episode dropped, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 Ghoul probably has the best arc so far of all of the characters, but it, it it does not trend, I don't think, in that direction of him becoming sort of consumed by vengeance or having a motivation in the direction that would make him the guy in the mask. Yeah. Um, he seems definitely to be more like, especially now that he's got his Obi-Wan, sort of this uh, heroic figure that has moved beyond where his his origins had started him um even though he's still worried about daddy i don't <laughs> yeah but you can't put bob in the mask it doesn't work yeah yeah uh and also uh, as, as i noted uh so when he first appeared i, I put a tweet image is like uh dual uh ghoul jaturk is the worst at everything uh and i would like to point out that he's also the worst at dying um because like twice in this episode he almost dies and both times like at one point olcott leaves him as like oh he must have gotten crushed and then no he didn't and they never really show it it's just like no nah, he just didn't that's just <laughs> almost like he has sort of uh you know I mean, we, we love to invoke code gear so i'm just gonna keep doing it almost like he's got like the suzaku like you you can't die curse on him you know <laughs> yes exactly like everyone around you can die you cannot sir there must be like a literary trope uh like a name for that type of literary trope because it appears in fiction quite often yeah yeah so i i you you got to feel for him. You got to feel for uh, Ghoul and his trauma, his intense, intense trauma. Actually, speaking of Ghoul, let's talk about his uh, appearance in this episode, his introduction in this episode. After checking in on a mobile suit refit, Olcott proceeds to the bathroom of the former school, now doubling as a prison. Here he finds a couple of children, Sado and Celia, who can't be more than 12 or 13, standing in front of a stall. They're trying to feed a prisoner who has recently been brought into custody, the Jaturk Scion, formerly known as Ghoul, a.k.a. Bob. Ghoul has certainly seen better days. Bound to a toilet, refusing to eat, he's been mumbling to himself, asking his dad to forgive him. Last episode, we talked about um, the animation in G-Witch, and we were praising the movement, particularly of the animation, but we were missing like that classic 70s and 80s Gundam animation, very stylistic, occasionally very painterly. Um, G-Witch tends to default to a more photorealistic mode. Um, and here, we get a really good shot of Ghoul's eyes, which almost looks like, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it had like a, a Maishi vibes, like a, the artist, the uh, the creator of Gurren Lagann. 
the the pupil is more heavily shaded. There are nice like pencil scratches across his eye. Because we get this close up to reflect how traumatic this scene is. Like this shot effectively conveys his manic stress. And I want more of these shots in uh, G-Witch, so it's nice to see. Like in the ending theme, we have these really artistic and experimental and like shots bursting with color. I want a little bit more of that visual experimentation in G-Witch. And I asked for that last episode, and we got a taste of it, I think, here. Yeah, uh, they they definitely did play around with it, his, his art style. And it's interesting because the way he's drawn in this early part is actually a bit different from like when he's actually a part of the action later in the episode. So like he is like scratchier, a little bit uh, more subdued, a little bit broken, like he, and you can feel that in the art as opposed to later on, he looks like a character in the show. Yeah. I feel like it also would be fun to compare these eye motions with the ones that Suleta has at the end of the first season you know, where she has that moment where, where Prospera is trying to coax her across the threshold to, to blood. And uh, and I, I feel like hers were, you know, still pretty characterized, still pretty, uh, you know, they, they captured what was going on with her, but they weren't quite as, uh, I'm, I'm just going to use borrow Stevens word painterly, uh, as we see here. Uh, it, would be, it would be fun to kind of see the uh, how the eyes evolve. Grabbing him by the hair and holding his mouth open against his will. Olcott force feeds Ghoul his first meal in three days. Ghoul Jaturk, Olcott declares, you can be our bargaining chip in negotiations. Tears stream out of Ghoul's eyes as Olcott reminds him that he won't be able to get out of this by dying. And you cut right to that opening. Like, oh man, this was such a vis- visceral opening bit. Like, especially this is um, amplified by the jarring transition to the opening theme. Like, this is one of those we're no longer in Kansas moments. Um, the show has had a few of them. But it signals, I think, in this show, a tonal and material shift in the show's storytelling. Like, this, Earth, this is not Ostacasia. Um, Ostacasia is where the children of corporate aristocrats pretend to be adults. Like, these people have been pushed to the absolute brink in order to survive. And we'll do, as, as Alcott very violently demonstrates, we'll do whatever it takes not only to live but to reverse their conditions. Um, like Olcott has seen some shit, seen some shit. Like, he wasn't b- born with a silver spoon. He'll take that silver spoon and jam it down his enemy's throat. If that means keeping up the fight. Yeah, it, it was, uh, I mean, going where the episode went, uh, it, it was one direction, but it was funny. Like they were force feeding him. It's like, maybe we can use him as a bargaining chip. And I was just like, Man, you guys are the resistance. Like you don't you don't know the fact that like they they will let you have him, I think. <laughs> like like he was already exiled and that was before he killed Papa. Um so I I, I don't think he's the greatest bargaining chip that you, you guys probably could have had, which is fine given where the episode goes. Yeah, it definitely speaks to like a difference in in like information and evaluation because certainly like what we know as the audience, I think tracks with what you just said, Mike. Right? Like, we, we, like what's the value of this guy at this point to to Jeturk or to Benneret or or you know any group? But one thing I do, you know, what, uh, so we were talking about visuals. I also want to talk about audio real quick because something I noticed upon rewatch uh, that I didn't pick up the first time is that, uh, and and this makes sense because it's a revelation later in the episode about Olcott is that you can very clearly hear a powerful mechanical whine when Olcott grabs Ghoul's jaw 
And so they're kind of already, you know, pointing at or alluding to Olcott's mechanical arm, but also like, God damn, you're using, you're using your mechanical strength to hold open a man's mouth. That is, ugh, it's, it's even more visceral than you think it is. If you're, if you're not paying close attention. Also, what if he chokes? <laughs> Cause he really looked like he was going to choke there for a moment. Um, before they smash cut to credits. I mean, openings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you imagine, though, if they were still using the opening from the first season? That would, have been, that would have been an even more jarring transition. Unplanned, Najee and the other Dawn of Fold leaders convene in a makeshift command room to discuss a message they receive from Nurea. Um, there's a bit here that caught my eye. The um, camera momentarily pauses on a line of portraits featuring well-dressed people on the wall. Um, this could be a bit of incidental world building. The show's not really too keen on these details, showing these details usually. So it made me think, like, are these folks significant to the Dawn of Fold? Or is this just, like, this was a former school. Were these former principals? Were these former donors to the school? Um, or maybe it's, if, if these people are important to the Dawn of Fold, do Najee and the rest of the members like take these photos with them wherever they go and put them in their new base? I think it's a bit. I, I could be persuaded either way. It's just unusual to for the camera to pause on these pretty detailed portraits. Yeah, for a hot second, I thought maybe the lady in one of those portraits was um, I forget her name. The the Space Assembly League woman, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. I don't remember her name either, but I, I had the same <laughs> thought. I had the same thought. But it's it's hard to tell, and who knows? They have yet to confirm it. Yeah, maybe uh, the Space Assembly League is uh, clandestinely or like covertly funding a resistance group like this. Kind of like, uh, I have to mention Andor like once every other episode, but like Mon Mothma and Andor like funding the resistance. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that's probably uh, something that will come up. There has to be, I, I think, outside of Shadiq, doing his own personal thing, at least one corporation in the Benaric group uh, that is maybe more sympathetic to Earth than we've seen, just because I also think they, they need uh, some of their own, more of their own Gundams. Yeah, the uh, Space Assembly League and their absence in the show is more ammunition for the idea that Gun uh, G-Witch might be a 49, 50-episode show. Because again, there are dimensions that the show hasn't touched in a long time, which still remain unilluminated upon. Yeah, one part, you know, we don't, one thing I was surprised that we didn't get into at all in this episode was these sub. So I feel like witches in this show are used to refer to either Gundam pilots or Gundam developers. And we know who their witches are. And so I was like very, very curious would they, uh, you know, <laughs> would, would they use those witches? Uh, like, would they actually tell us who the developers were at at you know at this uh, location? Like, it doesn't seem like it. Like, I, I I was really surprised because I thought I thought the source of the Gundams was like more important than the group, right? I mean, maybe that's mm. what maybe that's why the the group uh, excuse me the group security forces go and not Cathedra because Cathedra would be more interested in hunting Gundams than they would be in getting doing retaliatory strikes or security operations. Now, that's an excellent point. And I guess the origins of the 
the Lifrith Ur and the Lifrith Thorn are still murky. Like right. we have no idea where those two Gundams came from. Yeah. So that's the that that is basically the thing I'm wondering about is were the group security forces sent because they don't actually care about where these Gundams came from or who made them, or they really don't want to don't want it to be found out, right? Like, is it just you know, is it going to be like Pale House, right? Like another corporation was developing Gundams on Earth. That's an excellent yeah, point. I, I, I feel like there has to be one, and also there's, uh, um, I guess, is that a, a spoiler that there's a new kit? that they just showed. I mean there's a bunch of like, new kits that like we haven't we because we've seen pictures of things like Gundam short set and stuff right and like we still haven't we don't know what those are doing in the show oh yeah right remember short set we all thought yeah, that a, we thought that was Prospera's Gundam but like who knows if she gets in a Gundam there's a manga in I think Gundam Ace now and there's a like distinct Gundam in that manga that is also getting its own kit. I think it's a prequel series. Don't quote me on that. There's a whole bunch oh, of is side that, stories. Is that where out. the 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 it's the Lifrith GU comes from? I think so. I think so. Okay. The one with the finger gun cannon? Yeah, the 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 big old hand slapping. It. Yeah. I I saw it and I was like what is that? Like I, and I wasn't sure if that was a a thing for this or uh, the fact that it's a, a prequel manga side story spinoff makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it seems like there's going to be a wealth of side stories that are just, you know, some which made a Gundam. It's going to be wacky. You know, I mean, the design will be unusual, is what I mean to say. That's uh, probably still going to be pretty wacky <laughs> as far as Gundam side stories go. I mean, that'll depend on the tone of the side story itself, all right? People can tell serious stories if they want to. This is the first episode I'm like, man, I could actually be interested in diving into some supplemental content because the world is much richer than I originally thought. Yeah, no, they, they, they definitely have space. Uh, and I know they, they already started off with uh, a while ago, you know, in the first season, they had the full, they had the prologue episode and then they had uh, like a, a written thing sort of covering from the prologue to the first episode as well uh that they actually translated into english i was surprised yeah 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 sunrise is actually beginning to recognize that they're well they they know that there was once a pretty thriving gundam market in america in the early 2000s but i think they now realize that that market is back um, because you could go into target and buy some gumpla and some other kits and we got an English language Gundam Twitter, an official Gundam Twitter, just in time for Twitter to, to end. <laughs> <laughs> Nereir warns them that the Benner group has identified their location and will retaliate for the attacks on Plant Queta and Astacasia. As a result, they begin formulating an evacuation plan. Several members raise concerns about the safety of the refugees and their own families, to which Naji says they'll find a place for them to stay. He then orders Griston to prepare to launch the transports while everyone else is tasked with taking the refugees and cargo to the Western airfield. Last week, Dylan um, had a great poll pointing out the communalism of Earth House. There's something very almost pre-modern about how the Earthian kids live and in Iraq that stands in contrast to Spatian capitalism, to use a phrase adopted by the show. And I think this scene provides more evidence of that juxtaposition. As we learn in this episode, this base originally was a refugee camp. And it was the refugees who took the Dawn of Fold in and allowed them to conduct their operations here. Even though both parties share similar interests, it's 
obviously a risk to shelter terrorists. So this is mutual cooperation in action. This group, not to make too simplistic a take, but they all work together for the betterment and well-being of everyone. It's a very reciprocal relationship. Naji even says so himself. He says, we owe them for letting us hide here. Like compare this to Ostacasia. We saw last episode a brochure for Ostacasia promoting independence specifically, but we as viewers know from watching the show that the school also promotes competition and consumption. Like the differences here between earthen, earthian and spatian society and culture is starkly different. Yeah, I, w- I will say, um, actually I'll save that for later because it's, it's about the transport and what it recalled to me, but um yeah go ahead uh pmc you look like you were yeah no i just i was gonna say i you know the contrast between the how you know ostacasia is writ large to how the donna fold refugee camp is is like a you know worthwhile like an important compare contrast to do but i also do think that you know and you're you, you know we kind of indirectly did this because of our comparisons of how Earth House lives to the rest of Ostacasia, but comparing the refugee camp to Earth House is also worth doing just in terms of, you know, like what, what are the means they have? What do they keep with them? What do they prioritize? Uh, you know, absent other things. Hopefully, the Earth House dorm is not at risk of falling down. Hopefully, Astacasia has building codes that prevent that. I'm saying hopefully because we know that things don't quite work that way often. But uh, you know, so you know, absent certain threats, how do they react? You know, they're not they're not in a literal tent, even if their structure is is visibly worse than that of the other dorms in Astacasia. Yeah, it definitely feels like Earth Dorm Earth House is sort of, um, and it drags it back to sort of the global north and global south uh, comparison sort of the uh look how good we are we even allow an earth house to exist like these these are the scholarship kids you get to come and play uh at Altacasia and have fun with all of us see how how great we are and again that that's why the the additional color of what's actually happening on earth uh was interesting and useful to sort of explain what's going on here yeah, that's a super good point, too. I could imagine if you turn the page of that brochure, you would see like a, a, a fold dedicated to the goodwill um, Ostacasi and the Spatians demonstrate towards the Earthians on the colony. Yeah, there's like, we even have Earthians here. Look at that. They <laughs> love it. Those are the world building details that I would really like to see in the show, just because I, I just dig that stuff so much. I would kill to know what the Ostacasian version of a B Corp is. Like, it would be so funny to me. I also am curious how the Earthian, uh, any Earthian students are chosen. Is it like a straight shot? Anyone who applies gets in. I assume that's not the case. Do they have to take an extra test? Are they handpicked by certain Spatian representatives? That's fertile ground yeah. for storytelling. Is it, is it a lottery? Uh, because you, you have to wonder, because uh, some of the kids are going through their own sort of feeling of PTSD. Uh, which doesn't, at least for me, sort of lined up with the kids that we see on Earth in this episode, who I think would be a little bit more accustomed to to uh, conflict. Mm. So I, I do wonder, like, are these, you know, like 
second generation Earthians or something like that? Like, what's the deal here? Although they did show like that Choo Choo, like still talks to her family, like back on Earth. Yeah, PMC refers to them as the Union Dads. They're the you know it's funny they're the one set of dads that were missing from this week's episode. I feel like every other father and child relationship got involved, and we got new ones, but we did not have Choo Choo and her six Union Dads. There, that's a great subject uh, for a manga, like a gag manga side story. Yeah, where's my gu- official Gundam character page for the Union Dads Sunrise, I ask? Yeah, what's the deal there? Come on, guys. Inquiring minds want to know. Also, you can put an intern to write these up for us. Yeah. <laughs> you could look, let me look at the other character pages. You can tell us whatever you want, and we'll like 100% buy into it. I think the, besides Olcott, the other character I picked on was the House to Turk member, uh, Camille Kaysink, who... Um, his data is a third-year student in the mechanical department who is the chief mechanic of Jeturk House. With his leadership, he pulls the students of Jeturk House together. That's it. That's all you got to write. I feel like he wrote that. <laughs> he wrote, yeah. He, no, Camille wrote his own character profile on this website. I agree. Oh, I would kill for that personality if they wrote it from the perspective of the characters themselves. Yeah, I was like, it was homework. Yeah, we, we're making a website for the school for Ostacasia. We need you to, to write the profiles for us that we can't. We can't have someone uh, do this. I would kill to get a look at the Ostacasia yearbook each year. See, that's the kind of fun stuff that that really, you know, gets in there and and has a little bit of world building and it's really fun but also kind of dumb. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. But for you sure. kind of you kind of enjoy it like the like the, the, the bigger girl. Uh her little bio is like, you know, she's got a lot of paramours. I'm like, all right, you go girl, all right. Oh, Lalik is dominating. I mean, look, you know, she got she got picked on because she uh, turned down someone's uh, 12th backup boyfriend. <laughs> Speaking of Ostacasia, back in Ostacasia, Norea lays the proverbial smackdown on Nika, blaming her for Sophie's death and putting Naji and the rest of the group in danger. She condemns Nika for her silly ideals. Nika, on the ground after being clocked, responds... If all you do is cause suffering, no one will ever listen to the Earthians' voices. What you're doing is wrong. Norea proceeds to kick Nika in the face before pummeling her as she lays prostrate. Before things can escalate to a point of no return, Sabina intervenes. I think it's worthwhile to point out the neutral framing here. The show doesn't take a side, necessarily. Like, the camera and writing keep a critical difference distance allowing this to play out without interference and this impartiality i think is what makes gundam gundam even though i sympathize more with norea they both make some solid points which forces us the viewers to think critically about the issues nika's ideas i think are pretty juvenile and naive like she's worried about public perception when the material conditions of people's lives are on the line it's like the debate, the debate quotes with quotes around debate about climate change. Like there are people who honestly believe human activity is warming the planet. And if this warming continues, it will kick off extin- extinction cycles. But these same people also say, you know what? If we actually say that to the public, it will upset some people and hurt our messaging. So let's just keep that to ourselves and present a more palatable version to the public of climate change. Um both are foolish and myopic ways of thinking. Like, no one is listening to Earthian voices now. What makes her think their passivity will make that change? I will say, 
while their arguments do have nuance, uh, Sophie's death was Sophie's choice. Ha <laughs> 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 But uh, uh, at, at, at some point, hey, you did tell her, maybe lay back on the permit score just a little bit. And Sophie went all in on her own. So that's her fault. Nobody else's. Yeah, I was really surprised that, like, sure, blame Nika for this Bennett group, you know, for leaking information. Yeah, okay, I, I got you there. Sophie, I don't know. <laughs> she she was a little bit of a loose cannon. Now, you, she flew a bit close often. Yeah, that that's 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 my follow up point. Like Nika is damn right to call out Norea for murdering innocents. Like for Sophie, in particular, for murdering innocents. Even divorced from any PR implications, these are obvious ethical concerns. And I'm I'm glad we're given this space to marinate in this ideological soup. Like, this is a Gundam tradition. People have been debating the Bright Slap since 1979. Like, was Bright in the... I'm, I'm a Bright stance, so I sympathize a lot with Amaro. Mike, just I'll have you know. But, like, was Bright in the wrong uh, did, when he assaulted Amaro, who was a traumatized child soldier? Like, totally, absolutely right. But, like... Did Bright have a responsibility to his crew to maintain discipline to stem the tide of space noid fascism? I also think yes. Like the same is true here. Like Gundam is about the conversation it generates. PMC are PMC and I are slowly watching Turn A Gundam, and this comes up all the time with that show. Yeah, yeah. It it it, it does make sense. Uh even though the the bright slap isn't even uh, so I, I just redid uh, mobile suit Gundam with my partner like a year ago mm-hmm. and it, it's been illuminating but one of the things for me was like is Bright a bad commander? I think Bright might be a bad commander <laughs> like, like he's, he does the job well in terms of he's the only one that's there but like over the course of it I'm just like I think he might be bad at this <laughs> And we see Bright as the show goes on get subsumed into the war machine. Like uh, in the beginning of the show, he was a more innovative commander, if not a good commander. Um, yeah. Just asking like the refugees their opinion, which is kind of wild when you think about it. But he loses that that I guess edge when he becomes like when he gets his promotions and beca- becomes just another cog in the war machine. Yeah, very much so. Like once they they they're finally like. All right, well, you survived this long. We're going to keep you there. You get to to remain in command. And then he just sort of just falls off. He's just like, oh. <laughs> I like Bright because when I first, when I was rewatching Mobile Suit Gundam, I was thinking, you know, I was in my 30s or late 20s at the time, entering the workforce for the first time. And I feel like I, a similar situation with Bright trying to man... I'm a teacher, so I'm not middle management, but I kind of am. Um, navigating those middle management-esque waters. Kind of like Masato in a- Evangelion, for example. Uh, you, you empathize with the situation. Like, yeah you, yeah, you you were thrown into a pretty pretty dark situation there. I can't let you kill the student, Sabina instructs Norea, who promptly calls her a traitor. It's because of her, Norea says, that dozens or hundreds of our comrades will be killed in their so-called security operations. So tell me, which one of us is causing suffering? I really want to zero in on this bit where Norea calls Sabina a traitor. Now, the the mean girls, uh, Shadik's 
uh, click seemed to be pretty dedicated to his path in life, you know, and we learn more about that in this episode, but we really don't know like why they're motivated the way they are. We haven't had time for it, right? There's a, there's a whole bunch of them. There's a lot of stuff going on. We haven't really gotten too much into their motivations just yet. But I wanted to get like a, a, a temperature check on them because when we're first introduced to them, we were introduced to them as like the most popular girls at school. They're hotshot pilots. They got fan clubs. People love them. Uh, and now, you know, they're doing like practically wet work for Shadik as he as he takes over the Bennett group in, in a bid to end war partitioning, which like really cast them in a different light. Uh, Norea calls Sabina a traitor, which is which is interesting. Do y'all have any takes about about I'm calling them the mean girls. Feel free to call them what you want. I need I'm I'm craving more details. It's hard to come to an informed conclusion when I know so little about these characters and we when we still know so little about Shadik. Like the fact that he's half Earthian. Actually I have to ask, was that confirmed or pointed out for the first time in that episode, or have we known this all along? I I think that was the first time they said it out loud. Yeah, they had mentioned the adoption before and orphanages. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think but they, yeah. not necessarily where he came from. Yeah, so I'm cur- I'm curious if they're all in the same ideological boat. Like clearly, Shadik has some sympathy for the plight of the Earthians. I'm curious if that's also that rubs off on his his posse, his his uh, his girl squad. Yeah, because it feels like so. Like Dawn of the Fold, they have one. Earthian specific plot and Shadik is going along with that, but he definitely has more on the table that is uh, beyond that. And I, I honestly, again, think that that his scene with his father in this was my like, Oh, that that's our guy. (laughs) The mass descends on him like Vader and empire. Just going right down on his head. Yep, pretty much. He just he, he just needs a uh, you know maybe a reason to hide his face, uh, maybe a scar, maybe just a uh, uh, trying to hide himself from the rest of the corporations. However, it's gonna go. <laughs> Where he w- he'll wear a mask, but he won't cover up his chest. <laughs> that would be a very exactly. funny bit. Somewhere on Ostacasia, presumably, in a spacious room pulled straight out of a Megaton game, Shadik speaks to his father, who is now his captive. If all you wanted was to inherit Grassley, Saria says, you had plenty of chances. Why now? I have a goal to accomplish, Shadik says. We covertly finance the massive cost of space development through war partitioning. I want to break this system. The Earth will be exhausted by proxy wars, and co- corporations will scramble for the shrunken pie. Profits will likely evaporate, too. But I have a better idea. We merely need to sell all the Benner Group's assets to Earth. Who knows when the next war will start? We'll use the friction between Earth and the corporations to create a situation that works as a deterrence. If we do that, no one will have any need to start wars on Earth. All right, so <laughs> there is a ton to dive into here. Um, yeah, so this was the this was the real meaty part in between all. This was the the world building was like, ooh, oh, okay. I was, I was I was I was there for it. Give me these morsels. I was rubbing my hands together. I, I want to ask a very basic textual question because I feel like I have difficulty grasping this. So maybe one of you has a easier definition. When someone says war partitioning, 
what do they mean? So my general thought when that came up was like, okay, war partitioning. So they are making sure that conflict remains on Earth as much as possible. Like, probably the the closest Earth analog is something like the Sudan, uh, in areas like that where you're being sold weapons in order to keep you in conflict so that you don't all come together and perhaps pursue something different. Uh, Middle East would be like that for a while as well. Um, so my, my guess is not only is it profitable for the Benaric group, for Earth to be in, I guess, some sort of civil war. And again, this is one of those things where like, I, I want to know more about what is actually the situation on Earth as a whole. But it seems like the idea is keep them fighting, that's profitable, but also that focuses the fighting away from us. Yeah, I'm unsure if the Spatians are aggravating currently existing conflicts on Earth between Earthians, or if these are like Spatian corporations going against each other. Like, we don't know if there's, like, another Benaric group out there. Do they have a complete monopoly on space capitalism, or there are there other conglomerates of corporations that exist to potentially threaten? I'm pretty sure they've implied several times now there are other substantial corporations because um, when they're coming to justifying the existence of the Gundams, Mjorne says, we may need Gundams as a spark to be competitive. Competitive with who? probably the other corporations and the same thing here. If you sell all the Bender groups assets to the earth to create deterrence of other corporations, there have to be other corporations. Yeah. And that leads me to believe that spatian corporations have drawn up lines and divided earth into spheres of influence. And like in these spheres of influence, these corporations have like their own factory systems working. And this is where the, where the conflict on earth originates. Like historically speaking, when you use the word partition, the first thing that comes to my mind is the partitions of Poland. So like in the 1600s, the 1700s, Poland kept getting divided until it became nothing. So like Russia took a piece Prussia took a piece, Austria took a piece, et cetera, et cetera. And like, that's what I'm reminded of immediately. Um, I'm curious if there are any independent uh, regions on Earth, like uh, governed exclusively by Earthians, divorced from Spatian influence. And are they controlled by Maria, Marina Ismail? Who knows? Is they all, these are all valid questions. So first, in this in this great monologue, Shadik puts his his he quickly puts his finger on the geopolitical realities of the Ad Stella timeline in a monologue that's awfully similar to Old Snakes at the beginning of Metal Gear Solid Four. War has changed. It's no longer about nations ideologies, or ethnicity. It's an endless series of proxy battles fought by mercenaries and machines. War and its consumption of life has become a well-oiled machine. War has changed. Now, Mike, you 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 answered this earlier, so... Are you a big MGS fan? Did you were you originally an MGS fan and fall off, or were you just back in it for Death Stranding? 
Uh, I was an MGS fan, and then uh, as a as a tangent, uh, this was I want to say college, maybe high school. I was playing MGS two, and I felt like I was at the end, so I kept going, and it ended up being that I was at the end. But the ending to MGS two is long and drawn out, and especially nonsense when you're in high school or early college and probably it was like 5 a.m rolled around and i was just like (laughs) what did i just play oh god i only get an hour of sleep and that was my forget you sir forget you as strong as possible um so I watched a friend play all of MGS3, but I would not play it myself. And then Death Stranding was when I fully got back in. Hell yeah. PMC, did this did this ring familiar having played MGS4? Oh, I immediately thought of MGS4. So for, for anyone who's listening who is not familiar with Metal Gear Solid 4, a major component of Metal Gear Solid 4's premise is that the world is now covered by proxy wars that are used to uphold the military industrial complex. And there's the, the, the line that everyone memes on is war has changed. ID tagged soldiers equipped with ID tagged weapons. And, and he goes on like that for a while and classic David hater voiceover. Uh, and so this is very much sounds like the same sort of thing is that, you know, that war is a business first and foremost. Totally. And that's uh, by the way, that was a decent David Hader impression. I I've, I feel like I've done it better. I usually feel like I, I I'm most happy with myself when I reference any of the like 20 year old meme videos that would have been on the internet around that time. You know the like the um uh, crap battle. You know that kind of thing. And like you said, PMC, like Shadik points out that the Spatian corporations rely and perpetuate conflict on Earth in order to reap profits. Like, economically speaking, the Spatians need war to maintain their current way of life. The, the parallels to global American dominance, American imperialism, are very chilling and possibly intentional. Like, the most obvious example here is the Iraq War, which, if you're watching the news at the time, was declared on the basis of toppling tyranny and safeguarding freedoms abroad. But, but in actuality, it was a way to assert economic dominance and, to be blunt, make money. I, had a prof- I was... Um, during a portion of the Iraq War, I was a college student, and I had a professor who referred to Iraq as a spigot that American corporations tap dry at the expense of a lot of life uh, in the pursuit of a lot of profits. I think the same is true here. Like, and this sort of commentary isn't atypical for the mecha genre. These are, like, I'm a huge Pat Labor 2 fan. These are the same conclusions that Arakawa comes to in Pat Labor 2 in that very memorable monologue. Mr. Goto, as police officers, as self-defense force officers, have you ever thought about what it is exactly that we are supposed to be safeguarding? It's been 50 years since the last war, and both of us have lived our lives without being touched by war. Peace. This peace that we're supposed to be protecting What do we actually mean by peace in this country and in this city? The total war we fought and loss we suffered at its hands. The U.S. military's occupation and their policies. 
And until recently, the Cold War involving nuclear deterrence and proxy wars around the globe. Even today, half the world is engaged in civil war, ethnic clashes, armed conflicts. These countless wars are what made up and sustained our economic prosperity. It's bloodstained. That's the true nature of our peace. It's an unscrupulous peace based on fear of war. An unjust peace where we look away from foreign wars, in which others pay the price for our peace. It may be a peace that reeks of gunpowder, but it's still our job to protect it. I'd much more settle for an unjust peace over a just war. I can understand that you would loathe just wars. Proponents of just wars have mostly been scoundrels. History is filled to the brim with people who were taken in by them and then taken advantage of. But you also know this. The line that separates a just war from an unjust peace isn't a very clear one. Ever since hypocrites have made peace their just cause, we have lost faith in that peace. Just as war brings about peace, peace brings about war. A peace that is empty and lacks substance will eventually be filled in by an actual state of war. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? We reap the benefits of war, but distance ourselves from it with a television screen, forgetting that we're still in the same battleground. No, we only pretend to forget. Such denial invites great punishment in the end. Punishment? Who's going to punish us? God? In this city, everyone is like a god. You don't have to move an inch to see images far removed, or to touch things that aren't there and access other realities that are there. It's just that these gods don't do anything. If the gods won't do it, then the people will. Sooner or later we'll find out. That is, if we can't catch up to him in time. As another question there within the details, so like, in certain regions, like, what are... What are the Spatians getting out of Earth in that Earth can afford all of these weapons? In, in other places, that's been, you know, oil, uh, you know, drugs in terms of opium or stuff like that. Like, they, that's the part that I'm still sort of missing. Like, what is the Spatians getting from Earth that allows Earth to afford the weapons that they are purchasing for these proxy wars. Yeah, it is worth bringing up because the only, the only like important resource that we've discussed is permit, which we, uh, we know once upon a time came from primarily from Mercury. Now is primarily mined on the moon. Uh, neither of those places are the earth. Yeah. So unless earth has property rights on the moon, I'm not really sure. That was the that was that's the the one key that I'm I'm sort of missing in terms of the justifying the war part even though from a story perspective it's not necessary. 
Yeah, like the the metaphor totally works, but the tangibility aspect, the connective tissue isn't there just yet if you're taking a very close look at the world building. Yeah, so like, uh, and maybe there is an answer to that. And my guess is perhaps the answer also dovetails with why uh, people live in tent cities rather than the actual infrastructure in you know, the buildings and stuff that are, are going to ruin, like not even that far, like literally the building they keep ghoul and seems to be like right next to the tent city. Yeah. And also we saw earlier in the show, Earthians protesting Spatian hegemony, Spatian capitalism in a, in a city, it seems like. And I imagine that that's on the basis of being like economically ground to dust in the factory system. Yeah. So at the end of Shadik's monologue and the end of his conversation with his dad, he uh, correct. So he had correctly assessed the situation, I think, and he proposes a solution. Like I said earlier, we learned in this episode that Shadik is half Earthian. He clearly has some thoughts about Spatian dominance, and he suggests selling the Benner Group's assets to Earth. And as was pointed out in layman's terms, this means giving the Earthians the mobile suits and weapons they manufacture which in his mind would put the Earthians on equal footing militarily with the Spatians. This, he thinks, would act as a deterrence for future conflict. I think this is woefully naive, but remember, Shadik's just a kid. Like His perspective is very blinkered and limited. I mean, he is right that there is value to power. That could it, Will it create war and conflict? Probably. Will it improve material conditions? That could also be true. Oh, yeah. It could definitely improve material conditions. I don't think it's going to act as a deterrence for no. war. <laughs> that's what I'm saying is woefully naive. But to be honest, that's this is like a like a if I was at the dinner table with my parents when I was like 19, I was giving uh, my own takes on geopolitics. I might cook up something similar to this. Yeah. And, and it's it's it, to be clear, like the fact that his plan won't deter war really doesn't feel all that far off from Quiet Zero and the plans that are shown later um, being a deterrent to war. And those are plans by fully functioning, supposedly, adults. <laughs> yeah, a lot of red flags there, as we'll talk about. Yeah, Shadik didn't say, what if we were just like the plants? So I think, you know, some some points to Shadik here. Yeah, if you're ever on a date with someone, uh, that person starts comparing human beings with plants. Check, please. Yeah. That's not your date. That's Poison Ivy. Ooh. The next day, the Benerick Group's Earth Garrison forces are deployed to locate the Dawn of Fold base and its members. If you meet resistance, you're authorized to neutralize it, a Spatian officer declares. <laughs> Mech's riding shit is never not cool, and this scene is no different. Um, we saw some Zoworts earlier. For the record, the Zowart heavies, which this is, a good analog to the Z classic zaku design uh, this i think these guys showed up in episode four in the first half of this season um, but they're all proprietary pale suits and uh, i forgot this detail so the the thing they're riding is called this is such a gundam ass name it's called a uh, tick balang and it also has a kit i'm glad that we're a pro sled podcast i just want to say that i'm very happy to to be on that position i i am surprised one that that has a kit yeah, same here. Um, but yeah, uh, sleds have been good since uh, the original Gundam. Uh, ain't nothing wrong with the fact that uh, 
Occasionally, mobile suits need to fly for a sustained period of time. PMC and I live near a um, gun plus store. I haven't been there in quite a while. We're not model kit guys ourselves, but I imagine, because I know that Witch from Mercury kits are a little hard to come by, and I imagine if, like, tomorrow I decide to drive over there, I bet they'll have, like, no aerials, none of the cooler backs, but they'll have, like, seven tick belongs in the corner. Yeah, I'm, I, I am a Gunpla person, but mm. only for uh, Master Grades and up, um, and they have yet to do... A, a master grade era, which you know makes sense. Usually, master grades come later down the pipeline. But I did try to pick up the full mechanics aerial and uh, was unsuccessful. Uh, aerial kits are going very quickly. They're flying off the shelves, I hear, or just impossible to buy on the internet too. I mean, the the tick belong flies. It really does fly off the shelf. <laughs> Now, astute viewers were able to pinpoint that the Zowarts are flying ob- above Osaka, Osaka Bay. Like, shout out to Lau, a friend and former guest of the show, who pointed out that the mobile suits, quote, the mobile suits are flying towards Kobe, and you can see the Awaji Island off to the left, end quote. Like, not that this is much of a surprise, but the Donna Fold are, are operating in Japan. I wonder if they're also operating out of Japan. Like, this raises a whole lot of other questions. Is theirs an international group? Do they have cells across the globe? Or are they more local presence in Japan? Are they a regional resistance group? Again, I have these questions. They, they, they stick out to me. So strong. Yeah, I think uh, our guest from the last episode also mentioned how Nika's flashbacks showed her being quite cold, which suggested other geographic locations. So definitely eager to learn more about you know, where everyone's coming from. Meanwhile, Kananji Avery, from the comfort of his command ship, on a call with Rajan, Delling's number two, and I assume acting number one, wonders why the security forces are being deployed rather than Dominicus. It was the board's decision, Rajan says. They don't want to owe anything to Cathedra. Is this something corporations should handle on their own? Kananji asks. So I honestly think, um, from Okochi's perspective, I think this line is innocuous. I think it's unintentionally charged. Um, But it could be the subtitle for the show and so many other things in our lives. Quote, is this something corporations should handle on their own? No. And I think one of G-Witch's thematic impulses to say that, no, they should not. I really love saying, like, is this something that, is this something corporations should handle on their own? an act of the u.s government like you know you could really follow it up with so many different things it's the anime butterfly meme like is this something that corporations should do oh all right steven we got you got to do that we got <laughs> so you mike, do have to make that now yeah like a giant robot fm tradition is coming up with memes on the spot classic uh anime no, brain we're, podcasting yeah we're, we're posting fiends so that's not too surprising <laughs> Mike, did you have something you want to say about this before I, I got to the next note? I, I was I was thinking I saw, like again like Cathedra is another one. I know that they're they're meant to be hunting within the fiction Gundam specifically, but technically Gundams like they are attacking this Earth group because two Gundams and. Gundamish drones. I mean, yeah. Uh, Gundamish drones did attack a school. So, 
I do wonder, like, logically, if they should have been deployed. Like, within the logic of the show, it's like, I mean, they are hunting Gundams, right? So, um, but, you know, it's fine. Yeah, it does feel like one of them should have been there to be like, again, this is what I was referring to earlier, is to ask, like, so where did you get these? Like, you know, like, why, why, do, we, why do we have these here now? Um, but I also think, like, wondering about, like, what Cathedra is, much like uh, in, in light of all this world building, asking what these sort of secondary characters are doing and how we should feel about them is a really fun exercise, I find. And this is a great example. We're, you know, with Kananji and Rajan, in addition to Delling, we have like the trio of the people that we dislike the most in the prologue, the ones that were clearly our villains, the ace pilot, the captain of the ship, and the guy who made the, the call to go, you know, blow up the, the Vanadis Institute. And now they're, they're all kind of like, I don't want to friends is a strong word, but like, you know, a little simple. Delling's injured. Rajan is having tea with me, RNA. Kananji is just kind of, you know, the boss, like a middle manager. Uh, they, you know, it feels like almost like, uh, I don't, I am not, I am not a Game of Thrones fan, but they feel kind of like the Night's Watch. Like they just sort of forgot what their job was. They're all kind of washed up. They don't really know what they're doing here anymore. And, and they might need to, need to get called into service again. Uh, so I, I, I definitely find myself reevaluating them. I, I don't want them to be on a sympathetic track because I think they probably have some, some things to answer for. But if they can do some material good, I, I, I guess I can allow it. I feel like they're they're all firmly slotted into uh, the very poor, just doing my job kind of situation there. Like the banality of evil and stuff like that. Yeah. Especially Kananji. I don't really, yeah, because I don't really feel like they have a lot of mental fortitude. Like Rajan, if you remember at the end of season one, just like seeing Prospera, being in the same room as Prospera gives him such bad vibes that he pulls his gun because he's spooked. <laughs> like he is not handling things well at his age. I, I also think for, for like Rajan, like dad would not have told me RNA what Quiet Zero was. Like she's just like, hey, what's Quiet Zero? And he's like, oh, here, give me a sec. Let me just pull out. Oh, all you the look, your dad loves this one. <laughs> Yeah, it begs a lot of questions. How busy were they in the intervening 14 years since Prologue? Like, is this a Order 66 um, issue where, yeah, you kill, technically killed all the Jedi, but everyone and their mother is actually a Jedi who escaped Order 66 unscathed, so we're going we're gonna to be busy hunting them down? Or were there, like, six Gundams in the wild, and they've just been resting on their laurels since then, like, eager to track down any new ones that blip on their screen? Yeah, I mean, there, there do seem to be, like... It, it, uh, making Gundams doesn't seem to be hard, so you just need uh, the the permit and and the underlying structure for it. Because again, we have like a couple of actual Gundams, and then I mean, come on, like some of these are near Gundams, even though they are not technically Gundams. It's like prohibition, like just in your in your basement with your bath bathtub gin, just cooking up a Gundam. Yeah, like like that's this is this is not alcohol. This is a you know a, a dessert drink like Coca Cola. No, that that that's alcohol. Like, this is a on, this is a consecrated Gundam. Permissible. <laughs> yeah, like the Farakt is for all intents and purposes a Gundam. <laughs> what I was going to say is that uh, Kananji, I I'm kind of worried. I, so when Kananji first appeared in the main series. 
you know, he appears uh, more heavy set. And at the time, I, I was kind of arguing for just like the fact that people's bodies change as they get older. Like that's just normal. That happens. Kananji is not going to be some kind of, of fat joke. I do worry that we're still like on course to maybe suggest that Kananji has gotten soft and like lazy and that, you know, that there's some association of laziness and weight. Um, I hope that's not the case, but given how like inactive Dominicus has been, how slow to act the, I think the interpretation is still there. Yeah. I was worried about that originally too, suggesting a certain complacency on his part. Yeah, I mean, it definitely uh, seems to be going in that direction, but also, will he get enough screen time to really sell it? Probably not. But Rajan has a visitor, Miorine, which causes him to end his call with Kananji. Miorine wastes no time beating around the bush. She pointedly asks Rajan, what is Quiet Zero? As the Dawn of Fold prepares to evacuate the refugees and transport materiel, Bessie Jalil and Philip pack their things. Jalil asks why Olcott isn't packing his stuff, to which Bessie replies that he doesn't own anything. He threw them all away long ago. I'm just going to say it right now. Bessie's stash MVP of the show. Like, dude looks like a 70s porn star. These, these, All these folks have really unique designs. Um, I feel like th- these designs like are... Like, we have these three resistant fighters... If you take into consideration how all the characters have been featured on the show thus far, like the show definitely wants to highlight a diversity of body types. We meet a lot of very colorful characters in Ostacasia, but like these three look like dudes, like people you see on the street, blue collar types. Um, there's something very workmanlike to their designs, which I feel is an indication of class. Like you walk into a break room anywhere in America, you're going to run into Bessie, Jalil, and Philip. Um, PMC and I live on the East Coast in New Jersey. Um, you walk into a Wawa in South Jersey, you're going to run into a Bessie, my friend. I will say it's a it's a, an amazing mustache, but mustache uh, does not protect against uh, beam cannon fire. So that's true. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say whatever Ghoul saw, like whatever Ghoul saw left with the mustache at the end of the episode, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> Limply falling off his his, his upper <laughs> he looks lip, and he just sees the mustache. Oh God, he was not approving of it. That's what he buried. Just the stash. <laughs> wow, bleak. Man, that is bleak. And I'm just thinking him bearing Seethe and this putting Bessie's stash uh, on the mound. All right, on that that awkward note, I'm going to move to my next summary point here. Before they leave, the children construct an impromptu carn made out of toys to memorialize Sophie. Looking down on them from the vantage point of a bombed-out building, Najee says, she was a hero to the kids, after all. Alcott says they don't have time for this. Naji responds that it's important for the kids to remember where they came from and honor those who have come before. Otherwise, they'll be overwhelmed by the fear that they could die next. Looking at the horizon as the sun sets, Olcott isn't so sure. Okay, I'm going to talk about um, Olcott's fit. I talked about Bessie's stash. Now I got to talk about Olcott's fashion because, like, the dude has a lot of trauma. No doubt his childhood was one of war and hardship. We'll talk about it. It's important. But, like, can we talk about this guy's fit? Like, man knows how to dress. Um, he's got his slick back hair, form-fitting white shirt, khakis, 
and uh, this green scarf that complements it so well, like chef's kiss. Like, well done, Olcott. Dude's a handsome guy. I do feel like this is what the main character of Bastion grew up to be. Grew up to be Olcott. So, you know, <laughs> shout out to him. Oh, with the scarf, yes. Yeah. That's a good pull, PMC. All right, so I need to take I need to pop off about something. I need to take a little bit of a victory lap because on last week's episode of Radio Free Mercury, uh, I feel like uh, my co-host was very suspicious of the use of Sophie's toys. That there was a suggestion that the toys had kind of a a haunted nature or a corrupted nature, um, something along those lines. And I was suggesting that maybe they are in fact just well loved toys. They are not, you know, they're not misfit toys. They're well loved toys. And here, I, I feel like the, the show is saying, yes, PMC, we agree with you. And, you know, and that, that the toys become the means by which the, the kids who all loved Sophie will now, you know, sort of, or then they now remember and, and mourn the loss of Sophie. I am not excusing Sophie's actions, but I'm, you know, trying to kind of speak for, for the kids here and how they, how they use the toys. So it's kind of interesting to me. And remember, right now, at least, those toys are still in the OP. So those toys are going to stick with us for a while. We're going to be thinking about Sophie's mount, uh, Sophie's uh, burial for a while. I will say that those toys, as Sophie says herself, are supposed to represent her family. So she is technically being buried with her family, mm. um, which is uh, very weird and kind of dark. And that's a good call, PMC. Now, conversely, though, uh, my daughter was just watching Toy Story. It could be like a little Sid situation, too. Like, her toys were especially well-loved, which could speak on uh, maybe how well she loved them. But I ultimately, I do agree with what you're saying. Najee gets word that the preparations are nearly complete. He tells Alcott that the transports will take off at 5 o'clock in the morning. We mobile suit pilots will stay here, Alcott says. Najee inquires about Ghoul. If necessary, Olcott says, we'll use him as a bargaining chip. So Najee is definitely the leader of the Dawn of Fold. The website confirms this fact. But Olcott wields a lot of influence as one of the group's most senior members, which again gets me thinking, I wonder where and when the organization was founded and by whom. Like could, and this could be the subject of a dope manga side story or novel. Like if, if we do get a side story, it will be like, uh, focused on Jaleel and the crew, which is fine. They're cool people too. But I want to know the origins of the Dawn of Fold. Like maybe those portraits we saw earlier, maybe those are the original members of the Dawn of Fold. Like that's a really cool story to tell. Yeah, they could have fun with that in sort of a, like a Hathaway's uh, Flash kind of situation like that, like focusing on them. Give me a squad-based video game though, please. Give me a, give, give me a single-player Gundam video game, please. Sunrise. I mean- they did. Battle Alliance was can be played single player. I want you know what I want. PMC. I know I know what you want, and it's what I want too. But it, but that's just from a bygone era. I think I want something like Zionic Front. Yeah. Give me some like <laughs> classic PS2 Gundam action. As the sun sets, the Dawn of Fold pilots get into their mobile suits and into defensive positions, piloting Prodorises. Their priority is to keep them from detecting the evacuation. They're not to attack first. So you alluded to, you answered this question earlier too, Mike. I was going to ask you, are you a Front Mission fan? Because this is such a Front Mission-ass sequence. Techno music is playing. Everyone gets into position on the map. Alcott gives the team their mission objectives. Like this, I live for this stuff. Uh, it's very Front Mission-ass, but also the thing, and this was one of the things I was going to bring up earlier and decided to table until now, 
it feels a lot to me, uh, especially with the transport ships like Jaburo from oh. the original. And so I honestly was expecting things to go much worse for the civilians compared to how they actually do in this. I mean, it does not go well for their mobile suit pirates, uh, pilots, uh, and it is definitely down to um, whatever his name is that just jumps out a little bit too early. Come on, man, don't break the line. But, yeah, it does not go well for most of them. Uh, but I, I did think it was going to go much worse. Like, as soon as I saw the transport ships and the suits appearing for this big raid, I was like, oh, is this going to be another Jabra? Are we going to blow up this entire like tent city. Um, it did not go that way, but that's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. Just imagine like these flaming transport ships, like gals going down in 0079. Yeah. I was also surprised by the restraint shown to not, you know, have one of those stray missiles also go into a transport plane. Like it does go into the building where, where ghoul is being held, which, which makes me feel like, Worse things are to come. <laughs> if you're not doing it now, then what are you waiting for? I I think they were saving that because they really wanted for uh, the child's death to hit. And so they needed to not kill the other children. Like, why is this child really special and if they had killed all of the others earlier, I think that probably would have lessened a little bit of some of that impact. This might also speak to the partition, because I thought to myself, you got these two transport ships uh, flying in broad daylight. I'm surprised that Dominicus, Cathedra, any space organization can't track them. But if everything is partitioned between competing corporations, that makes a little bit more sense that they'll be able to slip through the cracks. Alcott, after spying Cedia, making her way to Ghoul's cell intercepts and disarms her screaming she rhetorically asks so instead of dad why'd they bring you back inverting her question ghoul asks why me and not dad see the irate agrees with his sentiment you should have died she declares sobbing she pleads with the universe give me back my daddy so this is like a obvious beat but i think it works really well the parallelism between ghoul and see both are assigning blame for the deaths of their dads to make sense of their loss. Cedia blames Ghoul. Ghoul blames himself. Neither are... T- I mean, yes, Ghoul did kill his dad. Technically, there is some fault there. But I feel like both are at the mercy of forces beyond their control. I'm reminded of the criticism some people leveled at the finale, the Core 1 finale, that Ghoul killing his dad was unrealistic, that it made no sense. But like that's the thing. It was senseless, and that's what Ghoul is having so much trouble coming to terms with. I, I, so so someone had a problem with that? Like, Ghoul was, up until, you know, it, it seemingly he was the best pilot at the school? Up until Ariel touched down? So, yeah, I mean, his dad was just a guy. Like, just a dude in a corporation. Really, he shouldn't have been out there at all. Yeah, there was definitely, like, someone on the Jeturk ship probably should have some sort of liability for letting 
them go out there. Like there's got like <laughs> you got to be able to say no sometimes. Like this is not the yeah. time for this. Yeah, like I, I I it it never even crossed my mind and maybe that's supposed to be like a a sign that they as a corporation were struggling that any of the corporation heads uh would ever pilot like even Delling Rembrandt, who seemed like to be the most put together and the most likely to descend into the depths of a space station and pull out his own special Gundam. I never had an idea that he would ever, you know, get in a, a mobile suit. Like, they are corporation heads. So, the fact that uh, Jim Jaturk died because he decided to go up against his super trained mobile suit pilot son is not really surprising at all to me. And like was specifically taking pot shots at suits because he was mad. They were selling his company's name. Like, you know, just like the most petty stuff. It wasn't even like, Oh, I saw this suit do something bad. I'm going to get it. No, nah, you were just, you were just looking for trouble. Yeah. It, 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 it'd be like, like Henry Ford losing a race to his son who had grown up <laughs> racing Fords. Like, nah, man, it's fine. But it, it, it was a good parallelism. And especially uh, they add that extra layer later in the episode with Olcott. So uh, as to sort of lean against the title of the episode, which was Father and Child. Shout out also to Natsumi kawaida see the voice actor uh the quiet desperation in her voice when she says give me back my daddy was really affecting uh hit definitely hit me in the feels and of course as does her death olcott unlocks the cuffs indicating that he's planning on evacuating ghoul sato asks why since this guy's company is about to go bankrupt this this news piques ghoul's interest who begs olcott for more information this is about my family. Meanwhile, the garrison forces have arrived. A bundle of nerves, Jaleel, going against orders, opens fire on the descending Zoworths in his Pordorus. Philip goes to back up Jaleel as missiles rain down from the sky. The battle has begun. All right. Uh, we got to talk about this new mech. Everyone's talking about it online. The Pordoros, the second MVP of this episode after Bessie's stash. Uh, I, know, I know you all have some thoughts. PMC, this is an armored core ass design. I feel like this guy might be like, you know, it's definitely very armored core-ish. It's maybe a little less so than the than the Zoart heavies, but I think what's outstanding is that it brings back one of my favorite. One of the things I've discovered recently in watching late UC that I really like are like hit mounted guns. I think they rule, and these guys got got them plenty. Uh, also, you know, love the face, love the the red eye. And then also the uh, melee weapons. I'm very much pro melee weapons. This is one of the best parts of watching IBO. And we got that back here. And of course, there's also story thematic elements going on there. We've already covered how you know the physical ammunition is kind of a Spacian versus Earthian thing. The use of melee weapons as opposed to some of the beam weaponry that the uh, you know the corporate forces are using. Uh, so this guy is doing important you know story work, world building work, but also a very good robot. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting how they've been able to 
find a lot of different, I'll call them riffs on the Zaku style. Like we've had the Delonzo, we had the Hustler out there, uh, some of the other smaller suits that, you know, only got one shot, but a lot of different variants on that basic Zaku idea. And this is probably one of my favorite of those. Speaking of first gun, it reminds me a bit of the Dom too, the way it like skirts through yeah. a battlefield, which I think is really effective when you're dealing with street fighting. And it's a it's a nice touch when considering how a mech built on Earth, um, probably used exclusively in street fighting, would maneuver. After devastating the school, the Zoworts touch down on the ground. Bessie, Jaleel, and Philip try to draw the Spatian garrison away from the airfield by luring them to the factory. Olcott regains consciousness amidst the rubble. As Celia calls his name, he flashes back to a traumatic childhood event when, again pinned under rubble, he called for his father. Fortunately, back in the present, he's not too worse for wear thanks to his prosthetic arm, which he uses to lift the wreckage under which Celia is pinned. She's barely conscious and mortally injured. There's nothing they can do for her, Olcott declares before telling Sato to join the evacuation. Before drifting off, she once again pleads for her daddy. I want to put a quick pin in something. We don't have enough information to answer this, but I very much find myself wondering if Olcott's prosthetic arm uses gun technology, and if that has to do with him changing sides, if that has to do with the Gundam Lifferth, you know, Ur and Lifferthorn. We don't know these things, but I'm definitely thinking about them. I was thinking that was probably like 100% the case, though they did not actually say that. Yeah, I was really desperate for some more information on Olcott's background. We get little, we get a little taste, but uh, the show is very, this episode is very restrained. And I, I was also wondering if, if Earth uses more gun technology, and that is another sort of leverage in Spacians pushing gun technology away in that they uh, don't want to sort of let those folks who have gunned prosthetics into normal and polite society, which again, was part of the core, uh, the corp that all of our lovely supporting cast were doing was bringing gun back again as a sort of, purely like the hope was a purely medical technology and that was the car corporation started primarily and largely by the earth house i'm thinking of a good meme now like the umbrella corporation selling gundarm technology don't worry it's for medical purposes you could, you could do the um the the bit from the graduate so i got i got one word for you son gundarm <laughs> that's good too with support from Mache. Uh, the Dawn of Fold pilots pressed the attack against their Spatian opponents within the confines of the factory. Despite initial success, Jaleel is the first Earthian pilot to die after his suit is shot right through the chest by a beam blast. Seeking retribution for his fallen comrade, Philip unleashes a hail of machine gun fire. Mache, operating an anti-artillery gun strapped to a jeep, provides covering fire, but is picked off by one of the Zoworts. R.I.P. Jaleel... On another note, we love to talk about the disposability of grunt mechs, but is there a more universal constant in mecha than a jeep or tank that eats it in a battle? Like, apologies to all the family members of all the tank, driser, tank drivers I've disposed of in front mission games over the years. 
What are you even doing? What What are you doing? Get out of here. That's not even a mobile armor. Come on, man. I know. Like, if you are there on the Jeep and I can see your body, you have already failed in this fight. You, you, are, you are done. The fact that you didn't get an IBO style, like someone just smacking your torso off the Jeep is... The level of disrespect that you can bring to tanks in Phantom Brigade is so funny because you can ha- take any mech and just sort of like wiggle them in the path of like a tank coming towards you and it constantly causes the tank to take damage and like enter into a crashed state which prevents the tank from doing anything. Uh, it is comic. It, like if, you, if, if anyone here is playing Phantom Brigade you have not played the game that way, please do it. Collisions are the funniest thing in that game. It's the best part. Yeah, and if you're if your path intersects one of those, it just you just step right on it yep. and it's done. It's done. I should say Meche is not killed here. Originally, when I fought, watched, watched the episode, I thought he was. He's going to meet his fate, but a little later. But he jumps off the jeep just as the jeep is hit, which is kind of a baller move. In an attempt to turn the tide, Olcott now piloting a. I need a, a spelling check here, PMC, but it's spelled it both ways. Is it Prodorus or Pordorus? Prodorus, right? I think it's Prodorus. That's what I thought. It's Prodorus, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, now piloting a Prodorus, enters the battle. Armed with a spear, he efficiently dispatches one of the Zoworts. I real like conceptually, I really like this battle because I think it whips. Um, it really speaks to what I like in mecha fights when they take into consideration the environment in which they're battling. Um, this is a feature of a lot of fights on Earth that's not always present in battles in space. Another thing I really like about this battle is how different it is compared to the duels in Ostacasia. Like these fights are gritty, tense, visceral. There is nothing glamorous about it. These pilots are down in the mud fighting for their lives. There's no pomp and circumstance like there are with the duels. There are no announcers to hype up the crowd. Cecilia is not getting off the couch here. There's no protection mechanisms. None of these suits have blade antennae. They lack ornamentation because they're not meant to stand out like they're meant to kill. The other suits are meant to kill, but they like to pretty them up to suggest otherwise. Like these differences serve to highlight, I think, socioeconomic, socioeconomic differences and class. Someone on the the Gundam subreddit said, "Like, oh hey, uh, I I turned on the the episode this weekend. It was an episode of IBO, and that <laughs> that is definitely the feel of the the suits and the fights in this episode, especially in this section." Yeah, speak, it's a, t- a tonal whiplash, but I think for I think it was not it was a nice contrast to what we've seen so far. I really do like the school stuff, but it was nice to. I read a really great tweet saying you wanted material conditions in Gundam. Well, here are material conditions in Gundam. Yeah, and and this stuff is needed in order to to really settle into the conflict. Like, why is Earth willing to go this far? What are they fighting for? What's really going on at uh, Alta Cassia and within the Benarid group as a whole. Like, you need that stuff to make this all work. Yeah, like whenever they uh, vary up the storytelling, which is always appreciated in any show I watch. Considering Okochi's affection for Shakespeare, I feel, um, this, I have a very English teacher take here, but I feel like the Globe Theater is an appropriate point of comparison to represent class distinction. Are either of you familiar with the Globe? Vaguely. Vaguely. Yeah, it's what you think it is. It's a, it's a circular theater. It's built during Shakespeare's time. It's been recreated and rebuilt since then. Um, 
And if you were taking a look at a diagram of the globe, um, if you were rich back then, like lords and ladies, landed gentry, let's say you're a wealthy merchant, presumably you would sit in the upper rows of the theater, um, which granted you the privilege of a seat so you could sit down, but also like a great view of the stage. And uh, you would have a lot of space also to relax. I'm sure these these noble motherfuckers, you know, got up to all sorts of mischief up there because they have the freedom to do so. And I feel like that's what Ostacasi is, the upper levels of the globe. Like Earth, Earth is the pit, which was the ground around the stage. It was the cheapest section of the theater, and it was also the rowdiest. Like here, the audience had to stand. There were no seats. They're also standing on the ground. Fights would constantly break out as drunk audience members pelted actors with fruit, if, especially if they were displeased with the actors. Um, like this is what a battle on Earth is. It's like a fight in the pit. It's bare-knuckled like that. And to take this comparison further, I guess, like that's um, if you got Ostacasia and all these noble people up in the balcony, you got the Earthians in the pit, then I would say like our cast of characters, like Earth House is on the stage, um, like caught in the middle of it all. And uh, all eyes, including our own as viewers, are on them. That was, that was beautiful. That was a beautiful work of metaphor, especially since this whole uh, premise seems to be based on the tempest yeah i'm really curious if that uh how that plays out uh, i really do need to go back and reread the tempest i've read it recreationally not for a class i've never taught it myself um, but it's been so long my memory of the play is very foggy in an effectively telegraphed turn of events ghoul carrying see on his back runs to safety he makes it to a road where he hears a vehicle he runs in its general direction as i said before they never really explain how Ghoul did not get utterly crushed like everybody else. They're just like, oh, God, looks over. It's like, ah, he's probably dead. And then the next scene, oh, there's Ghoul. Cool. <laughs> there's nothing stopping Bob. He doesn't even have a prosthetic arm. I mean, he was doing blue collar work, so maybe he knows a thing or two about uh, building safety. That's true. That's a good point. Meanwhile, back at the factory, the fighting continues unabated. One of the Spatians almost gets the better of Olcott, if not for the intervention of Philip, who sacrifices himself so Olcott, and by extension, his own wife and child, by his own wife I mean Philip's wife and child, can live. Immediately after, Mache and Griston, (laughs) so he's back on the jeep again, die after their jeep is consumed by an explosion. You would think at this point that maybe he doesn't get back into another jeep. This guy is tenacious. Today is a good day to die. Yeah, I mean, have you ever met a, like a Jeep fan, like people who really like Jeeps? Because let me tell you, they would also keep getting back into Jeeps. So my dad has a Jeep. <laughs> I, I do. I love my dad, but I don't think he's jumping back into the fray. All he does is wave at other Jeep owners with his fishing rods attached to the top of his Jeep. Bessie, having run out of ammo, charges at a Zowart with his melee weapon, but is dispatched with ease. His mobile suit craters in the ground, where Ghoul and Celia come upon it. Opening the cockpit, Ghoul vomits upon seeing Bessie's limp and lifeless body. However, he does notice that the damaged suit still has some power. So my question here is, and it probably makes sense considering they fight on Earth, but they don't have like any sort of inertial dampening. Like the suit, when Ghoul finally gets in it, seems fine which means he just died from like impact (laughs) that was my interpretation as well yeah (laughs) which 
makes sense, but also comes to sort of like the idea that maybe, uh, you know, the Prodors isn't uh, as maybe as high tech. It's a little bit more functional, a little bit more built for Earth. Um, and so things like, I don't know, protecting the pilot against someone just pushing the robot really hard probably is a useful thing. Back on the orbiting warship, Kanaji receives intel indicating that Ridrick Kruger, a former Dominicus member, is still alive. He was an immature kid, Kanaji remarks. Unafraid of higher-ups, he stuck to his own sense of justice, but in the end, he was attacked by Earthians himself. I want to jump in here. here. Yeah, I just I would really want to encourage you if you have the opportunity to uh to like pause on uh on Olcott's rap sheet because he's got some wild stuff on his rap sheet. I don't know if you had the opportunity. I I, I got the screen cap right here, so let me just put in right in the group DM. Uh, it's, so he is responsible for the bombing of Benner Group Northern Hemisphere Earth headquarters. Uh, the Mediterranean space shuttle attack, the shooting of global security company president. An occupation of Pacific Ocean mine. Our boy has been busy. I just want to make sure people know he has a career. Alcott's ri- rising to my favorite character of the show already. <laughs> it's interesting, too, when you compare his methods to Sophie's, because we talk about the immaturity and naive perspective of some of these students. I would say he's targeting the right folks as opposed to Sophie going on a killing spree in a school, um, which, of course, raises all sorts of red flags. Back on the battlefield, giving voice to the themes of the show, Olcott declares, I don't need those damn things, before picking off as many Zoworts as he can. Ghoul, flying over the factory, opens a comm channel with Olcott. Right as he does, he realizes that Celia has died, her body, bloody body, limp in his arms. <laughs> Man, they really put Ghoul through the ringer in this episode. Like, <laughs> Bob does not deserve this. Or maybe he does, depending on your perspective. Uh, and and also, it sort of puts paid to the fact that uh, Alcott, he says he doesn't need these damn things. I assume these are connections. But perhaps if he had actually tried to help Cydia in the beginning, mm. she would have survived. Um, considering that she survived as long as she did with uh, Ghoul just sort of carrying her on his back and then putting her in a mobile suit. That's a good point, too. We don't know the circumstances of him getting the prosthetic arm either. Like, maybe someone did him a good turn, and if he were to do Cethia a good turn, too, she'd still be with us. Yep, yep. It's just, again, Ghoul being the best boy, and uh, the world kicking him for it. I loved how many people during the first two weeks of the season were asking, is Bob okay? And we got our answer. Yeah, Mike, we had a meme, the the Vader meme, like uh, we riffed on the where is Padme line from episode three, but we had like, where is Bob? Is he okay? Is he safe? And like two weeks later, people were answering that on Twitter, like going, no, like emphatically just going, (laughs) replying to the tweet, no, he's not all right. On a brighter note, as dawn breaks, the transport ships safely fly off. Olcott tells Najee he'll rejoin them eventually, but first needs time to think. He then approaches Ghoul, who has just finished burying Celia. Ghoul says that he heard Celia mumbling Daddy, which alerted him to her presence. 
Olcott again flashes back to that childhood battlefield where he watched, like presumably he watched his dad die. A lot of question marks there. What should I do, Ghoul asks. You'll have to think for yourself, Olcott replies. Ghoul then asks how to get to the orbital permit lift. I don't want to, to lose any more of the things that bind me to my father, Ghoul says. Okay, obviously this is a major turning point for Ghoul. I do wonder what the end point of his arc will be or the continuation of his arc. Like, he, he's going back to Ostacasia, I presume, to reunite with Lauda and take up the family mantle as the Jaturk Scion. Like, he seems, if I'm reading his words correctly, he wants to honor the legacy of his father, but we're unsure of what that means. Like, will he... Like, there are a lot of theories out there who returned to Ostacasia mask, seeking justice for his father, like Shar. Uh, shout out to Megan uh, for this theory. Does his arc resemble more Tony Stark's from the first Iron Man? Like, even though technically these weren't Chaturk suits, he did witness firsthand the horrific effects of his family's business. Like, will he take over Chaturk heavy machinery with the plan of pulling out of the war economy? Also, will he be more sympathetic to the plight of Earthians given what he went through? Like, there are a lot of variables to consider. I don't think he'll he'll come back, uh, Char, Char as an Abelside. I do think it'll probably end up with like, like Ghoul, maybe cutting the hair, strolling in with the business suit. Like, I feel like our ultimate end here is moving the hot-headed pilot into the level-headed, compassionate businessman. Um, so I, I think at the end of all of this, I, uh, that that ghoul will probably be like the Bennerit group head that he never would have been outside of excessive trauma. <laughs> um, I will also note that they 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 talk about the orbital permit lift, which uh, begs the question: Is that saying that it's powered by permit or? do they mine permit on Earth, which would answer my previous question. That's a whole lot of permit, I would imagine, to shuttle people up into space from Earth. I'll be really curious if we see that. Yeah, I, I think building on, on what Mike said, the, the thing I, I would add in is I do really think, you know, we're all on a very obvious collision course right now, which is Ghoul returning to the scene to discover an injured Lauda. Uh, I don't know. We don't know how injured Lauda is, so that will obviously affect Ghoul's course of action. Uh, but I'm very curious to see what effect that also has. Like, that's another thing I would throw in there along with his experiences on Earth. So at this point, we roll ending credits. However, this is not the end of the episode. In a post credit scene, we get the rest of Miorine's conversation with Rajan as the two sit down for tea. It's like you're playing three houses, and who's the last person you want to have tea with? Rajan, Delling's number two. It was a modest idea at first, Rajan explains. As a botanical engineer, Mistress Notret thought that the various survival strategies used by plants could also be applied to humanity. Apparently, Delling took an interest in Notret and her vision. As a soldier, having witnessed the horrors of war, Delling desired a restoration of human nature and put his hopes in quiet zero. It's at this point that Miorine realizes the purpose of Ostacasi and all the duels. It's camouflage for quiet zero. But you, Rajan says... Mistress Murine, your life is yours. You are not your father. Please follow your own heart. Folks, I got to say, the botanist to eugenicist pipeline is real. 
lots of red flags here, like I alluded to earlier, like treating humanity like a greenhouse in an attempt to weed out undesirable attributes will probably result in genocide. Just saying. And lo and behold, when I searched the keywords botanist and eugenics, a lot of revealing historical examples popped up, like Marie Stopes, a 19th century paleobotanist uh, who advocated for, quote, eugenic birth control, wherein inferior women of the lower classes would be prevented from having children, end quote. Again, I tell this to my students all the time. If you're on a date with someone, they're talking about population control. If they're talking about like Malthus and they're talking about like the population bomb, I'd take a step back. Take a step back, maybe go to the bathroom. And so, one, going with that sort of idea, again, leans back into the idea that they dislike Gundarm because of the medical uses and the people that it allows to continue to function. Um, but two, I was like real confused. I was like, like they were like, uh, you know, the the plant survival strategies. I was like, what what survival strategies? What what are you talking about, bro? Like, yeah. are, is this a, like a hive mind thing? Is this like Quiet Zero is related to to Airy and Aerials? Like, is this you're, are you going to digitize humanity? I'm like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, that's the big question. The instrumentality of it all. This is actually a prequel to Knights of Sidonia. Everyone's going to get uh, photosynthesis after this. <laughs> I laugh unknowingly having not seen Knights of Sidonia. I'm dead serious. Uh, all the characters. Yeah, no, that was the thing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yes. Except the main character. You know, and, and the last, in my last Metal Gear Solid reference for the episode, Delling for me is coming more off more and more like a MGS villain, like someone who saw how soldiers were treated as disposable objects and wants to create a world where that no longer happens. Um, so I, I'm very curious about Delling when he wakes up and presumably is just like, like gunned arm technology is coursing through his veins. It, it's, it's just, it's like weird hearing that that concept because Delling has essentially created on Altkazia a proxy war format where no one has to die. And if he cares about humanity that much, he could just give that to the Earthians. Like you can still have your proxy war G Gundam style, but no one actually has to die for it, but he doesn't. That's a good point. You could, you could give the people robot jocks and you aren't. Why is that? Oh my God. Did you just bring up robot jocks? <laughs> wow. Welcome to wow, giant robot. FM, going Mike. Back. Important foundational text, you know, I will say kudos to Rajan, um, giving Murine an out. Like he, he's right. He's got some skeletons in the closet, no doubt, but she is her own person and can forge her own destiny. Like, that's super easy to say, though. <laughs> like, as Char says... I was about to say, that's pretty That's, that's pretty low-hanging fruit. It's like, you, you don't have to do this. Uh, man, I just came to you with the Quiet Zero thing. My father's <laughs> in a coma. The other lady, uh, my girlfriend's mom, is definitely batshit and planning something. Um, and we're being attacked right now uh, by people who, as far as I can tell, we let into the school. So, <laughs> but as any human being will tell you, it's impo- impossible to st- like to 
break free from the legacy of your parents, of your ancestry, of your uh, familial legacy. Um, literature wouldn't exist otherwise. Like what Char says, it's it's not easy to escape the misfortune of one's birth. Um, but I'm real, real curious, um, ideologically speaking, where Miorine goes from here. She's I'm most interested in her characterization going forward. Uh, as 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 I said, I, I believe Gould is going to go from hot-headed pilot to businessman. I feel like Miorine is going the opposite direction to someone who believes that she has a takeover to just some person, probably a botanist given the whole tomato thing that we keep hammering on. Oh, yeah. Someone, because I mentioned, I did the Red Flags meme with the uh, the botany quote, and then someone on Twitter, like, message us about some like weird tomato related to let me, just, let me just speak the words out loud oh what was it oh yeah you're right now i remember this this was unusual tomato all right so this is the wikipedia page tomato grafting is a i'll just read the first sentence is a horticultural technique that has been utilized in asia and europe for greenhouse and high tunnel production and is gaining popularity in the united states typically stock so it goes on from there but Whatever tomato grafting is, it does not sound, it sounds suspicious. Well, if it's like, so I was just looking uh, something related to this about oranges. And mm. all oranges are all essentially grafts from the same tree. So maybe it is something like that. Like Sounds almost biblical. Yeah, like there is one tree. If you try to plant your own oranges, they will not taste quite right. Uh, all big orange plants they have one specific tree that they've sort of cut grafts off and then planted those grafts um so the tomato thing is probably something similar that makes sense there's all the suleta clones are in the tomatoes Oh no, that is probably what it is. Oh no. So, you can't take credit for that. I think someone snuck into my DMs with that. Like little Ray Ayanami's from Evangelion just looking back at you. Yeah, because we're we're still trying to figure out. We know Ari Ari is the main part of Ariel now, but they definitely seem to hint at the idea that each of the bits has its own mind as well. She says everyone. That's multiple. <laughs> That's plural. Yeah, PMC is ride or die for this theory. <laughs> he thinks like uh, Suleta's whole elementary school class is up in the Ariel, spread out across the bits. Yeah, I, I like. What if she's just like the thirteenth clone or something like that? Mm. On that, on that ominous note, that that brings us to the end of our episode. Uh, Mike, it was an absolute pleasure to podcast with you. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you guys about all things Gundam. And I did uh, that sunrise show that I forgot and I couldn't think of the name for. It's uh, a mime warrior at the borderline. Also known as Kyokai Sinki. Okay, which oh, ran I have heard from of this. like yes, which ran from like twenty twenty one to twenty twenty two over like two seasons. Um and I wanna say that they're still like vaguely interested in that because they still release kits for it and stuff. Yeah, I think I think there's a little minor controversy about a, a sunrise show with very like super nationalistic themes. It might be that one. Uh it 
definitely is. It definitely is that one because that was uh, about like Japan's birth rate lowering and then other nations like going in to help them and creating a war. And it's just like, why would we do this? (laughs) This doesn't make sense. A lot of red flags there. You find out the main character is also a horticulturalist. No offense. If you're, if you're a horticulturalist, no offense, Uh, no offense to my paleobotanist out there. (laughs) Uh, But it's, uh, it's been a blast gentlemen. Mike, before we leave, do you want to promote yourself? Where can people find you and the excellent work that you do? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter as long as it survives at Automatic Zen. That's Automatic Z E N. Um, you can find me on Fanbyte every day, writing primarily about Final Fantasy XIV, but occasionally other things, uh, such as uh, Jedi Survivor, maybe Warframe in the near future. I'm currently playing Honkai Star Rail, so yeah. Mike, you cut out there. You, did you say you're playing Jedi Survivor? Uh, yes, and also uh, Honkai Star Rail. So, you know, I may write about uh, uh, either or both of those things in the future. Awesome. You never super, know. super interested in Jedi Survivor. Um, it's, on my, uh, it's, on the, it's on my list of games I'm very interested in checking out over the next three or four months. It's good on PS5. It's very good. I'm just not done it yet. Cool. Well, you'll be able to find uh, links to those things uh, in the show notes, of course. I encourage you to go down, click them, enjoy enjoy the following on Twitter while we can, and you know, and all the other excellent reading activities. If you want to help out, Giant Robot FM. Giant Robot FM is an independent podcast, so rating reviewing us on your podcatcher of choice is greatly appreciated. Uh, right now, we are uh, prepping, uh, beginning probably late May, our Gunbuster coverage. It's going to start off with some history coverage, Blue Blazes. We announced this recently. And uh, we're really looking forward to putting those planes into motion. If you want to support us on Patreon, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, where we do podcast series like this, our Radio Free Mercury series, our Moon Race Wireless series, where we watched a few episodes of Turn A Gundam, which we'll return to once we finish up this season of Witch for Mercury. We also have a podcast series called Simulator, where we do give mecha video games, the same treatment that we give mecha anime. We've done the Armored Core games, Zardion, Front Mission, uh, we'll be doing Front Mission Gun Hazard next. We just put out an episode on Frame Grind. So if those things are of interest to you, go ahead over to patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Check those out. I want to give credit to Dwarf S and Shkin for our art, for the graphics that we use. We have new cover art this week from Shkin. Uh, super great artist. Definitely appreciate them. I want to give a credit to Fretzel for the music that we use. Hashtag ban Fretzel. I think as the final statement on this episode, I think we could all come together and agree, cool, best boy. 